And I want us just to take one week of a pause from Hebrews to remind ourselves of really one key truth that will help us remain faithful in the years to come. As some of you unfortunately know firsthand, one of the most painful things you can go through as a Christian is a church split. Of course, we know that sometimes churches split over things that really are inconsequential and members really could resolve those issues if they would lay down their selfish desires. But at other times, churches split because they were once faithful churches and yet shifted somehow in their doctrine or practice that caused a fundamental split. So why is it that sometimes faithful pastors and faithful churches drift off course into error? How does that happen? I know personally, some of you are here this morning, you've told me you found our church at a very painful season of life because you're coming out of a church that you once dearly loved and were committed to, but that church shifted in some way and made it to where you no longer could be there. And all of this, of course, brings us to a very crucial question for us this morning. How, as a young church that's excitedly celebrating two years together, how can we ensure that this local church remains faithful? How can we be sure that this church will be faithful in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years, and until the Lord were to bring us home? Well, let me begin by saying clearly that the answer to that question is not hidden from us. It's laid out on the pages of Scripture in clear language. We don't have to wonder how a church can remain faithful. And this morning, I want us to actually return to the first message that I ever taught to our initial launch team. Uh, before we ever planted, we had a, a group of families that committed to come with this church from our sending church. And I began to do some, some messages with them in preparation for what would become North Lake Bible Church. That began in the fall of 2019, but since that time, we've nearly tripled in size. What that means is that many of you are, are new to our church and, and weren't here when I went over some of those fundamental things. And those of you that were here still need to keep these things in mind. We never need to get too far beyond some crucial key truths that should really stand in the background of everything that we do. And so we have to know this morning that it's crucial for us to never forget that we do not have the freedom to create our own formula for how the church will function. A lot of people mistakenly think that when they plant a church, they plant thinking, hey, we've got a blank slate. We'll just do what we want. We'll make this church great, and, and we're going we're to do this and that and the other. We don't have that freedom. There is truth laid out in Scripture, clear direction for how every faithful local church is to function. In order for us to keep that in mind and to stay on that course, there's one overarching truth that we have to keep in mind, and it's this. It's our theme for today. Jesus Christ is the undisputed Lord of the church. Jesus Christ is the undisputed Lord of the church. It's my goal for us to unpack this theme. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, so, so uh, tie your shoes, get ready, get your coffee, whatever you need. But we are going to move through several texts of Scripture in the book of Ephesians, primarily three different texts. And what we're going to see are two key truths 
and eight crucial implications that flow out of those. Two key truths and eight crucial implications. The first truth that I want us to see this morning is that Christ is the only head of the church. Christ is the only head of the church. To see this, we're going to begin in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Our verses will really be verses 22 and 23, but I want to begin in verse 15. We're going to read from there for the sake of context. So Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul writes, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the work of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, just to give us some context on the book of Ephesians, it's written by the Apostle Paul. It's one of his prison epistles, which means he wrote it at the same time as Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And the first three chapters of Ephesians deal with doctrine. Then he turns the corner in chapter 4 and begins to apply that doctrine. So it's evenly divided of doctrine in the first half, application of that doctrine in the second half. And he's developing one key theme, and that's the eternal plan of God. The eternal plan of God. How is it, Paul says, that God accomplished our salvation? He begins in chapter 1 with one of the most glorious explanations of the sovereign grace of God extended towards us in salvation. In short, how is it that our salvation was accomplished? Well, Paul says, first of all, God chose us before the foundation of the world. Secondly, he predestined that through Jesus Christ we would be redeemed and adopted into the family of God. And then thirdly, he gave us the Holy Spirit as a a pledge of the inheritance that awaits us in glory. That's a summary of how he accomplished our redemption. But in verse 15 where we began reading this morning, Paul turns his attention to a prayer, as he often does in the opening verses of a letter. He turns his attention to a prayer of thanksgiving, and he prays three specific things for the Ephesians. And this is all just to get us into the context. But here's what he prays for. He prays for the hope of their calling in Christ, that they would, they would know this, that they would know the hope of their calling, that they would know, secondly, the riches of their inheritance in Christ, and thirdly, that they would know the power of God towards his own. That brings us to verse 19, where he, in thinking of the power of God, he gives us some examples. In what way has God demonstrated his power, specifically in Jesus Christ? And he mentions in verses 19 to 23 
four different examples. And this is going to lead immediately into our passage. Here are four examples, Paul says, of, of how God the Father has demonstrated his power through the Son. First of all, he says Christ's resurrection. Secondly, Christ's exaltation. Thirdly, Christ's authority. And then finally, Christ's headship, which will be where we spend our time this morning. So Paul's overarching point in this section of Ephesians is, is meant to strengthen the believer's knowledge and confidence in the absolute power of God that's now working on their behalf. The same power of God that did these things in and through Jesus Christ is now working in and on behalf of every single Christian. Now that fourth display of his power, Christ's headship, is where we're going to spend our time. But I, I want to explain just a little bit of that third example, Christ's authority, because it ties into our understanding of the fourth. So look with me again now at our specific text, Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 22. And he, that is God the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet. He put all things in subjection under his feet. That's the third example of power. I've, I've called it Christ's authority. Notice that God the Father is the subject of the sentence, meaning that God is doing the, the action towards Christ. And what is it that the Father's done for the Son? It says he's put all things in subjection under his feet. You may have a, 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 a note there of a reference to Psalm 8.6 and your cross-references there in your Bible. That's because Psalm 8 deals with God putting creation underneath the authority of, of mankind in general. And, and that is true. In Genesis, God told Adam and Eve that they were sort of the crown jewel of creation, made in the image of God, and that they would rule over creation. But as you and I know, because of the fall, we, we don't perfectly rule the creation. We do still have dominion over it, but it rebels against our dominion and authority. What Paul is saying here is that God the Father put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ. That is, Jesus is the perfect God-man and will be the perfect fulfillment of what is written there in Psalm 8. That all things are under his authority, ultimately in his power, and he will one day return to reign over it. And even now, he sits in the heavens, reigning from the throne. Now, that brings us to this fourth and final display of God's power, which is really relevant for us this morning. Look back at verse 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Notice the change in the verb here. He says, and he, and he gave him. God the Father gave the Son. In, in those other demonstrations of God's power through Christ, the emphasis is on Jesus being the recipient. God raised Jesus up. God seated him at the right hand. God put all things under his authority. But here, Jesus is given to a group of recipients. It's Jesus who is the gift. I love this verb, gave, because look who the recipients are. And he gave him to who? The church. The church. It says, and gave him as head over all things to the 
church. This mention of church refers to the universal church. That is all Christians uh, together. And we obviously meet then in in local assemblies like this one. But Jesus is the, the head of the church universal. Meaning also he's the head of each individual manifestation of the universal church. So if you're a true Christian this morning, if you're part of the church universal because you've repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this verb gave affects you and it affects me. When he says he gave Christ to the church, he gave him to us. To us as head over us. And notice that he says as head over all to the church. He's playing off of that third description. He's put all things under the feet of Jesus and then took him who is head over all things and made him specifically in a unique and intimate way the head of one particular group of people, the church. He put him over the church. This is the crescendo of this passage, the crescendo of God's display of power in Christ. He's been building to this point. He raised Jesus from the dead, exalted him to the right hand of God, put all things in heaven and earth and under the earth under the power of Christ, and then gave Christ to this unique group of people, the church, over which he would have headship, but also a special intimate relationship. What a gift. What a gift to us as the church. If you're not feeling the impact of that, of the the gift of Jesus to the church, just think of it this way. What if the head of the church was someone else? What if the head of the church was the Pope, as Roman Catholics say? Think about that. What if the head of the church was a pastor or a group of elders? What if the head of the church was any man or woman on earth other than the God-man, Jesus Christ? The answer is, the church would be doomed. The church would be doomed. If if the church is ruled by any other human being than the God-man Jesus Christ, it would be powerless over sin, and it would be abused by man's sinful desire for power. It would be vulnerable to every attack from the enemy. If the church has a head other than Jesus Christ, the church will fail. The gospel will not go forth. People will not grow in holiness. The church will not live in unity together. The church will have no strength to serve and no power to fight against sin or the enemy. The church will be lost if it has any other head than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is that Paul writes these glorious words, And God gave him as head over all to the church. The one who has all power and all authority so that he can protect the church, so that he can redeem his people, so that he can sanctify his people. He is the head of the church. If Christ is called the head, then that obviously assumes there must be a body. And that's where we come in. The church, which, verse 23, which is his body. In keeping with the illustration, if you have a a living head, if it's alive, it must be naturally attached to a living body. And that fills out the illustration. He uses the, the human body to describe the unique relationship that Jesus would have with the church. He does, though Jesus is over all creation, it doesn't call creation his body. Only the church is called the body of Christ. Because only the church is connected to Christ in this intimate way. 
It, it emphasizes the special union that we have with him as believers, that we are one with him. A healthy body is not only connected to its head, but it's rightly connected to its other parts. We are therefore connected not only to Christ, but to one another in this illustration. We're brought into a new relationship with Christ and a new relationship with everyone else that he has redeemed. So I'm connected to you, you're connected to me, we are connected to one another and all of God's redeemed. At this point in the text, Paul describes this special union in a pretty mysterious way. He describes the, the body, the church, in verse 23, as the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I'll just tell you, there's a lot of debate among commentators as to what this means exactly. But I think we overcomplicate it just a little bit. Because all he's really doing is, doing is explaining and expounding upon this illustration of Christ as the head and the church as the body. In the same way that the body is the fullness of the head in our human body, we are the fullness of Christ. He's not saying, let me be clear, that Christ needs anything or that, that we could ever really add anything to Christ. Christ is God. He, he needs no addition to himself. But in his eternal plan, this is what's amazing, in his eternal plan, he has sovereignly designed it that he would connect himself to the church in this unique and special way so that we are now called the fullness of Christ as his body. But just so we don't get confused, he ends that verse by saying, who fills all in all. Jesus is the one who fills all in all. He fills each one of us, his people, and that's why we are connected to him in such a unique way and to one another in this unique way. Now, I wish we could spend much more time on this idea of the relationship of the union of Christ and his church. But that goes outside the bounds of what we're really looking at this morning. What I want you to see in this first truth is simply the fact that Jesus Christ is the only head of the church. He is the head of the church and no other. But there's a second truth in Ephesians that I want us to look at this morning. Truth number two is that Christ is the only cornerstone of the church. He's the only cornerstone of the church. This comes actually at the end of chapter 2. We're going to skip ahead just a little bit to the end of chapter 2. But before we read the text, let me just remind you quickly of what happens between the verses we just read and the end of verse or 22, chapter 22. Because here in chapter 2, we have, as you know, this wonderful description of salvation. Of, of, of how it is that we've been brought into this body. How is it that the head, Jesus Christ, has redeemed us? He tells us that we were dead in our sins, but made alive by God. And then we were even seated with him in the heavenly places. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works, he says. Then at the end of chapter 2, he gives us three more illustrations to describe our relationship with Christ. He's already told us that Christ is the head and we are the body. But he's going to add some other illustrations to help us understand. He says we're also, in verse 19, we're citizens of God's kingdom. Later in verse 19, he says we're also members of God's household. And then the one we're going to focus on begins in verse 20. He says we are bricks in God's spiritual temple. So we're, we have this head and body relationship. We have this citizen and kingdom relationship. We have a household relationship as members of his house. And now we see in verses 20 to 22, we are bricks in this spiritual temple. 
Let's look together at Ephesians 2. I'm going to pick up in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It's this third illustration of Christ as the cornerstone of the church that I want us to focus our attention on. He says there in verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's beginning to describe this spiritual temple, which is the church. And he says the foundation of the church is, is built upon, in part, the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. But as we talked about last week, the office of apostle and the office of New Testament prophet have, have ceased. The, the role of giving new revelation is no longer active because we have it here now in the scriptures for us. Their job is complete and verified. So if that's true, in what sense does Paul say that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church? Well, it has to mean that this refers to their teaching and their doctrine. The church is built upon this, the revelation that was given through them, the, the truth that they taught. But notice Paul qualifies this description of the foundation of the church being the apostles and prophets with this important statement. He says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So yes, the apostles and prophets, they're part of the foundation of the church because of the, the, the revelatory ministry that they had. But make no mistake, Paul says the chief foundation, the cornerstone of the church is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now to get the significance of this, we have to understand a little bit just briefly about architecture at the time and the use of the cornerstone. Because in, in our day, if you see a cornerstone on a building, it's usually some kind of memorial, right? There's an inscription on it that says so-and-so gave money and we're naming this building after him or whatever it may be. That's not the idea of the cornerstone at this time. The cornerstone in construction at this time was, was the most important stone in the entire structure. It, it was a huge, large stone that would ultimately bear the brunt of the weight of the building. But not only that, it was cut so precisely that the rest of the building was laid out in accordance with that stone. So the shape of that stone would ultimately determine the walls and the structure as a whole. So it was a support of the building, but it also determined the entire structure of the building. That's what we have here with Christ. Yes, the apostles and prophets were part of that foundation, but Christ is the cornerstone. That is, it rests upon him and it finds its instruction, its, its guidance for what it is to be based upon Christ. That's the significance of what he's saying. So that stone not only holds up the building, but sets the pattern. It dictates the entire structure and shape of the building. This ties in very well with what we studied last week in Hebrews. Remember in Hebrews chapter 2, our passage last week, beginning in verse 3, 
after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What we said there last time is that the revelation that came through Jesus Christ came through him first and was validated and then came through those who heard the apostles and Paul here adds even the New Testament prophets. It was verified, it was laid down, and thus we have the foundation of the church itself. So don't miss this. What that means, now that we put both truths together, is that Jesus both presides over the church as its head, and at the same time stands under the church as its pillar and support. He is all in all. In that sense, he rules the church and he sustains and gives direction to his church. And Paul here describes the, the growth of the church. This is kind of where we come into the picture in two ways. If you look back at the, the text here in, in verse 21, it says, In whom the whole building, this is the church, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, we, we don't have time to fully unpack that, but essentially what he's saying is Jesus lays the cornerstone and the foundation of his revelation, the apostles and the prophets. We are then redeemed and added to that foundation like bricks. And, and, and the church begins to grow, one, by adding new bricks as the the Great Commission is accomplished and the gospel goes forth, but also it grows as each individual brick grows in spiritual maturity. So it's not just adding more bricks, it's the bricks themselves growing by the ministry of the Spirit through the Word, and thus the church is built always on the foundation of Christ. So I hope you understand that when it comes to remaining faithful as a church, our first priority is to understand who the church belongs to. Whose is it? Who has the say? Who has the authority to say what we will do and what we will not do? What we will teach and what we will not teach? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The role of the elders in the church is not to create the doctrine and philosophy of the church. It's to hold the line of scripture so that the church stays in conformity with the truth. But these truths produce many implications for us as the church. The fact that we're ruled by Jesus Christ, who is our, both our head and our cornerstone, has some really important implications, and I can't even possibly begin to give you all of them. So to give us a framework this morning, what I want to do is look at another text later in Ephesians. Remember I said the first three chapters are doctrine, the last three chapters are application. We're going to look at one example of how Paul applies these truths that he's just told us, and we will learn from those how we as a church can remain faithful to our calling in the Scripture. So we're going to see eight crucial implications. We're going to have to move through these fairly quickly, but I, I hope that you will see just how beneficial they are. These descriptions are going to come primarily from Ephesians chapter 5. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, Paul has two primary intentions, if you will, that he wants to communicate. 
He has the sort of intention of the immediate context, which is to give instruction about the relationship in marriage between husbands and wives. But he also has in mind the larger context of the book of Ephesians as a whole. And and that context speaks of the relationship of Christ to the church. Now, this is a very famous passage of Scripture. Hopefully you know it well, especially if you're a married couple. It's where we turn, and rightly so, to get instructions on the role of husbands and wives. But it also gives us this beautiful picture of Christ and his church. And it's that picture that I want us to focus on this morning. In fact, he builds the relationship of marriage off of the fact that he's already established the headship of Christ over the church. So he's done that in the first three chapters. And now he's going to show us some implications of the fact that Christ is the head of the church. Now, obviously, it'll be helpful to your marriage to think about that as well. But I want you to see the effect of the fact that he is our cornerstone and our head. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to read the entire section of Scripture, verses 22 to 33, in in one sitting, and then we're going to just pull out these implications uh, quickly together. So, beginning in verse 22, Ephesians 5, he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, And shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, maybe in reading it through that time with that emphasis, you realize for the first time just how much that passage is really about Christ and the church. Obviously, it is in context and instructions on marriage, but so much of it is built off of this foundation of the relationship of Christ and the church. And there are some some important implications here for us as a church because Christ is our head. I want to walk through these with you together. First of all, we're going to begin each one with this statement. Because Christ is the Lord of the church, implication number one, the church must Submit to him. The church must submit to him. We saw that in verses 22 to 24. The first implication that he reveals here has to do with the church's responsibility to Christ. If he is the head and he is the cornerstone, then the only right response of the church universally and each local expression of the universal church is that we are in complete and total submission to Jesus Christ. Notice he says, in everything. The church is to submit to Christ in everything. 
we may not live our individual lives or our corporate life as a church in any way we please. We are bound to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that begins, as I said, on the individual level. Perhaps you're here this morning and maybe you've begun to attend our church for some time, but the truth is, if you're honest with yourself, you're not living in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never really repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the first implication for you personally to the fact that he's the head of the church and the cornerstone is you must be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, which means you have to recognize that you are a sinner who's broken God's law and you deserve his judgment for your sin. That's the truth of your standing before God if you're not a Christian. You deserve his wrath for your sin. And yet, the Bible says God is a God of grace and he's extended mercy and grace to us in a person, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived in your place and my place and died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin for all who would believe in him and rose again from the grave. And the Bible says if you desire to be rightly aligned in your relationship with God, then you must repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That's the first right response for the individual to these truths. But there's also a corporate response. If you're in Christ, we as a church, as a body, have to respond to this truth by understanding that when we gather for worship, when we are in our small groups, and when we're having one-on-one -on -one individual fellowship with one another, at all times, we must keep in mind that we are in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. At all times, he stands over us as our head. North Lake Bible Church does not belong to me it doesn't belong to the elders, it doesn't belong to you, and it doesn't belong to us as a group. North Lake Bible Church has one head, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us must feel the weight of that. In our discussions, in what we say, and how we treat one another, even in how we think about the church, we're to align that with our head. It does bring up a question, though. How do we know? I mean, if Jesus is our head, and right now he's exalted to the right hand of the Father, how do we know what our head wants the church to do? Well, understand, as I've already said, let me say it really clearly, we submit to our head by studying and obeying the Word of God. Our head has graciously and kindly not left us in the dark, but he's given us his instructions for the church in plain language. It's written in ink, in paper and ink, right here for us. We, have, we must know the truth and be committed to the truth. You may not realize this if you've never done a study of ecclesiology, that is the doctrine of the church, but the structure of the church, the doctrine of the church, the philosophy of ministry of the church, and the mission of the church are all plainly said in the scriptures. In fact, you may not realize this, but all of the elements that are required in a worship service are laid out in the scriptures. Why do we read publicly the scripture every week? Because the scripture says so. Why do we sing in the church? Because the scripture says so. Why do we give? The scripture says so. Why do we preach? Because the scripture says so. You see, the Bible tells us what the church is to be. It even tells us how we're to have a worship service. And so our job is to know what the scripture says and to be totally committed in our obedience to the scriptures. 
And in that sense, we obey the head of the church and follow his leadership. Now, that brings us to a second implication. Because Christ is the Lord of the church, he loves the church. He loves the church. You see, that first implication dealt with the way that we must respond to Christ. But all of the rest of them are going to be about how Christ responds to us because we are his. You remember in Ephesians 5, he tells the husband to love his wife based on what? The fact that Christ loves his church. Understand, if you're a Christian this morning, Jesus loves you. He loves you with a love that you could never begin to understand. He loves you in a way that he set his love upon you, not because of who you are, not because he saw you and said, oh, I've just got to have them. No, he saw us and said, look at that, that rebel, the sinner who actually hates me. I'm going to set my love on that one. And I'm going to open their eyes to the truth and bring them to myself. And then they will be my people. And I will be their God. He loves us, it says. In fact, he describes that love in the first chapter of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love... He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This is the love of God towards his people. The Bible says, because we are connected to Christ as our head, he will love us. There's a third implication. Because Christ is the Lord of the church, he purchased the church. How is it that the church was brought to Christ? Well, he paid for it. He bought it, it says. The love of Christ was demonstrated in that he laid down his life for the church, Paul said there in Ephesians 5. He laid down his life for the church. That is, by his own blood, he made propitiation. That is, he satisfied the wrath of God on for, that was rightly towards his people. He satisfied the wrath of God so that he could buy us with his own blood so that we could be his. He purchased the church. He laid down his life. It's a fourth implication. Because Christ is the Lord of the church, he is sanctifying the church. Understand, it's always been God's plan not only to save us, but to conform us to himself. The gospel is not simply just come and be forgiven. It includes that. It's more than that, though. It's come and be forgiven and then transformed and conformed to the image of Christ so that in the end you will be like him indeed, so that you can be with him face to face. The good news of the gospel is so much more than just forgiveness. That's why Paul describes it here in Ephesians 5 as he, he washes his bride with the word of God. Why? So that he might present her to himself without spot or blemish. And he does it, the Bible says, with the word. He washes her with the word. Because the word of God is the primary means he uses to sanctify his people. That's why Jesus prayed on the night before his death, John 17, 17, to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is 
truth. What is he saying? Lord, sanctify my people with your word. This sanctification, though, is while it's ongoing in our lives, all of us are, are still sinners. We, we're growing by God's grace in Christ's likeness, but still struggling with sin. That will come to an end because there's another implication. Because Christ is the Lord of the church, number five, he will glorify the church. He will present the church to himself without any spot or blemish, making her as she must be in order to be in his presence forever. It's such a beautiful picture of God preparing us, just like a bride prepares herself. Only in this case, it's, the, it's Jesus himself preparing the bride. He's doing the preparation. He's making her what she must be in order to bring her to himself. And he says, and he will present her to himself without any spot or blemish. What does that mean? It means he will glorify us. Understand that heaven is not us floating around on the clouds and playing harps with sort of chubby angels that look like babies. But he will give us a real glorified body without sin so that we can be with him forever and ever. And we will see him as he is because we will be like him. Man, what a wonderful gospel. What a wonderful head that is ours. There's another implication because Christ is the Lord of the church, number six, he will care for the church. So what Paul said in Ephesians 5, when he was talking to husbands about how they should care for their wives, he said, you know why? Because Jesus cares for his body. He nourishes and cherishes the body. That's us. He, he, he gives the body what it needs to grow. He cares for his body. Those are intimate words. He nourishes and cherishes the body. He doesn't just give us sort of the crumbs, bread and water, just to make it by until eternity. No, he nourishes us. He cherishes us. Christian, are you in some trial or pain or difficulty today? Are you tempted to think that the Lord Jesus Christ is far off, that he's and somehow not listening, he's unconcerned with you? No, we have a, a head who's faithful, who loves us, who nourishes us and cherishes us, and he will see us through every valley not just making it through, but growing us along the way that we would be conformed more and more to his image. This is the head that we have. It's another implication. Because Christ is the Lord of the church, number seven, he is one with the church. He is one with the church. Paul states this glorious truth about the, the union of the husband and wife, and he quotes Moses, actually, the words that Moses wrote in response to the marriage of Adam and Eve, and says, for this reason, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. But then he says after that, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. What is he saying? There is a, a unique, special union in the marriage relationship between a husband and wife, but there is an even greater Union that goes beyond our wildest imaginations of Christ to his people. That we will be one with him forever. Now do you understand why Paul chose to say that Christ was a gift to the church? That he gave him as head over the church? We are the recipients of so much grace. Because we have Jesus Christ as our gracious head. This kind of love and sacrifice and humility should have us begging to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, ready to use the gifts that he's given us for his glory. 
But more than that, it should cause us to tremble at the thought of doing anything in the church that he has not said that we are to do. To, to depart from this book in one iota or degree should cause us to tremble at the thought because he is the head and he's given the instruction. But if you're not yet convinced, if that does not yet cause you to tremble, then perhaps this final implication will. And this one comes to us not here in Ephesians, but actually in the book of Revelation. And it is this final implication. Because Christ is the Lord of the church, He is the judge of the church. He is the judge. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. Beginning in verse 9. Revelation 1, verse 9. This is the Apostle John, who was the closest, really, friend, if, you, if we could say that in his earthly ministry, closest human friend to Jesus, also his cousin. He writes, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Understand the significance of what we just read Jesus Christ is not far off. He's not, he's not just sitting in, in heaven far removed. It says, I walk among the lampstands. And what are the lampstands? The churches here. He says, I walk among them. Why does he do that? Because he is the head. He nourishes and he cherishes his church. He's also the judge of the church. He disciplines his church. And just in case we think that we as North Lake Bible Church, because by God's grace we've had a strong start, are somehow impervious to, to falling away or from moving off center to the left or to the right, I want you to understand 
the very first church that is mentioned here is the church that we've been reading a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to them. It's the church in Ephesus. And what does he say to the church in Ephesus? Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you've per, you, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Think of that. If you don't repent, Ephesus... I'm coming, and I will remove you as a church. These are sober words, church. And it brings us to a conclusion with these two final points of application. How should we respond if we're going to be a faithful church? Well, number one, we must honor the Lord of the church. Honor the Lord of the church. We have to remember that he is our head. He presides over the church every moment of every day. Our success or failure as a church, listen to this, will not be measured in the number of people who join. It will not be measured in the number of dollars we raise. And it will not be measured in the size or grandeur of our buildings. It will be measured only by our undisputed head based solely on our fidelity to him and his word. It is there that we rise or fall. May we honor the Lord of the church. Secondly, cultivate a high view of Scripture. Cultivate a high view of Scripture. Faithfulness in any church begins with the leadership, but it ultimately requires the involvement and commitment of every member of that church. If we're to remain faithful in the years to come, we must each individually remain committed to a high view of Scripture. And what that means in simple terms is that if the Bible says it, we do it. We obey the Scriptures to the letter. Understand that when pastors or churches drift, it's because they give in to some kind of, of pressure or temptation to either blatantly set aside the authority of Scripture altogether or to simply reinterpret the Scripture in a way that's more culturally palatable. Neither of those are options for us. We have one head, and he has laid out for us one standard and in, in one place, and it's the Scriptures. If we're to honor our head, we must have a high view of Scripture. And it is sincerely my prayer that we may be, by the grace of God, a church that is found faithful by our head when he comes to bring us home. With that in mind, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these are very encouraging words, and yet at the same time, they are sobering words. Because we recognize that we are still sinners. We, we still stumble in so many ways. We desperately need your strength if we are to fulfill what you've said in this, these passages, God. Help us to be a faithful church. We want to give you praise and thanks for where we are as a church. We recognize that any good that has happened, it's come because of you and your grace. 
And we ask that you would help us to remain humble, help us to remain dependent on you and your word, and help us, God, to be faithful to the gospel and your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.